We're going to be turning to the Gospel of Mark. So as we kind of clear off up here, we're going to, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn there with me. Mark chapter 2, we're going to be going from verses 1 through 12. You can read along in your own Bible. The scripture will be on the screen behind me if you want to follow along. Or one of the things I just really, you know, I advocate for this. You don't have to do this. I just, I really like listening by closing my eyes. Because when you remove one sense, you kind of hone in on another. And so if you want to close your eyes and listen as the word washes over you, you are welcome to do that. All right. Mark chapter two, verses one through 12. Here we go. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such a, a large number that there was no room left, not even outside of the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof to, right above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Admittedly, Jesus knew, immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? Or to say to him, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, take up your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say... Thanks be to God. We're making a slight change this week. Um, I'm going to do a little bit different direction than we had originally planned. We've been living in this series called The Art of Neighboring. We looked at who are our neighbors? What does it mean to serve? How do we understand the concept of radical hospitality? And we will land in a place of neighboring, thinking about concepts dealing with neighboring. Um, But Dr. Bishop, our district superintendent, has been with our clergy team this week as we've been processing and journeying through some of our recent events. And I know we prayed earlier for Nell, and um, I'm sure Sheila gave an update of what we know so far is that we just continue praying with them and the Sims family as Nell is in the ICU. If you missed that, if you're part of the parade, our senior pastor's wife, Nell Sims, um, had surgery two weeks ago last fr- on Friday, Friday two weeks ago, and is still in the cardiac ICU. And we pray for her. Um, we, we really pray for her and we pray for Robbins and his family. And because of that, um, we want Robbins to be as present with his family as possible. And Dr. Bishop, our district superintendent, has been with us as we kind of journey through this together. And so because of that, we thought it would be good for all of us to preach the same thing. Um, Dr. Bishop and I and Sheila and Kathy talked about it, and we decided in, both, in all three services, we're going to preach the same text, um, just so that as a community, as a whole church, we're in the word together, that we're journeying through this together. So this is not what we originally had planned for our Art of Neighboring series, but I think even within it, the Holy Spirit is working and making some connections. So I'm grateful for our vision team members, those who brought us such encouraging words about the work of the vision team, and we're going to talk more about that next week now. 
Sheila and I will preach about that. I'll be in here and Sheila will be in the festival service. And we're gonna preach more about where we've been, where we are and where God is taking us. But for now, um, we're gonna sit with this idea, this text from Mark. So will you pray with me as we jump in? Lord, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said... So before I became the associate pastor here at Dauphin Way, most of you know I was a chaplain at Huntington College. It's a small liberal arts school in Montgomery. That's where Brian and I met. Um, we both went to college there. And then after college, I went to seminary and then was appointed back to be the chaplain of Huntington College. And there's a lot of things I don't miss. I'm gonna be honest, that I don't miss about Huntington. I love Huntington. It's such a great school. I don't miss like multiple nights in a week, like being out till midnight for ministry. College students stay up way later than new parents. New parents get up way earlier than college students. But I don't miss the midnights. I don't miss the dining hall. I don't. You know, to be able to do connectional ministry, you would go to lunch and have lunch together, but they, they had the swipe passes. So I ate a lot of meals in the dining hall and my health has greatly improved since not eating in the dining hall every week. I, I don't miss um, these long stretches of time when there's no one around. So I'm super extroverted. And so in the summertime, Christmas break, when everybody's gone, I'm just like miserable. I'm like, where are all my friends? I have nothing to do. Like, I don't, what do I do with my hands? I have no idea. And so I don't miss those things. But there's a few things I do miss. A few things I do miss. And one of them is like predictability. The thing about college ministry that grants you, it's a very predictable life, a very predictable season, schedule, energy. You know in September, lots of high energy, lots of excitement. People are coming back to school. You know in October, midterms, people are gonna be like stressed out. You know people in December, it's gonna be really chill because the semester's over and there's hardly, it's very predictable flow, schedule. My life does not have that right now. Predictability is not really the name of the game when you're adulting, I guess. But the thing that was also predictable that took me a little while to catch on to was during the junior year of a religion major. So I was a religion major and there's a a lot of students, 50 or more students that are religion majors at Huntington. There was like this predictable experience that would almost always happen between the first semester of their junior year and the second semester of their junior year. In that window, there was this experience that you could almost like, like clockwork was gonna happen if they were really engaged in their studies. Like if they didn't do their homework, they didn't read the books, and like this was not gonna happen. But if they were engaged, there was always gonna be a crisis of faith that happened between the, the, the fall semester and spring semester, the junior year. And it wasn't built into the curriculum. It wasn't like, you know, intro to Bible, intro to theology, intro to crisis of faith, intro to like, it was just... When you engage your faith that much in a real and meaningful way, when you start asking questions about who God is, who is this Jesus of Nazareth guy and how does he relate to my life and to what I believe about the world? How do I compare these things I'm learning from these textbooks to the things I learned in Sunday school? It just, it was going to happen for for most of these students. You you could kind of, you know, set your watch by it. The junior year, there's gonna be these questions. And one of my favorite things about being a chaplain was being there when they had these questions, because I went through that and someone was there for me. Whenever I was first having questions and doubts about who God is and how do I understand prayer and what does it mean to be a Christian and you know, I, I learned this, but now the Bible says this and how do I reconcile these things? And so these students would come to me and they'd say, you know, I don't, I don't know if I'm a Christian anymore or I don't know if I believe in God the way I'm supposed to. I'm so scared because so much of our identity is wrapped up in our beliefs. 
So much of who we are is, is conditioned at a young age through our church and through our family. And whenever those things are just being thought about in new ways, it's scary. And so there'd be students in my office, they'd be crying, like, I don't know if I have faith anymore. I don't know what it means to have faith. And I didn't just let them out of my office and say, all right, see you later, good luck. That was like the perfect time to like be a pastor, to be a chaplain, to journey alongside. I'm thankful I've experienced that here too. Adults go through that also. This is not just exclusive to college students. I think we should all be having these experiences at times or else we've made a false God. If we're not having faith crises at times in our lives, at some point where we don't question things, that means we have figured all of God out and we're good to go. We don't even need to go to church anymore because we're set, right? So if you've ever felt that, if you are feeling that, it is natural, it's welcome, but it's scary. It's terrifying when you question these things. And I used to tell the students, I would say, they say, I don't know if I have any faith or I don't know about my faith. I said, well, I have enough faith in you and enough faith in God that until you find yours, you can borrow some of mine. I tell them that all the time. It became kind of cliche, actually. It was just kind of my line because I believe that. I believe that whenever we are having struggles, it's okay to lean on those in their times of strength. That's what marriage is all about, right? Right now, I cannot hold my child while she is crying, so my wife is doing that for me. (laughs) Our relationships are built to be able to support one another during times of need. Our relationships as sisters and brothers in Christ are built that same way. In these times where we cannot do for ourselves, we lean on those who can help. In these times when we can do for ourselves, we let others lean on us. That's what this story is helping us see this morning. I think this is the reality that is before us in our Mark passage. There are three things that I want us to be able to see from this passage, and we're gonna jump back in, we're gonna walk through the text, and I want you to look for these three specific things, we're gonna talk about them after we journey together, all right? It's who Jesus is, we're gonna think about who Jesus is, the nature of healing, and the faith of the friends, all right? So think about those things, that who Jesus is, the nature of healing, and the faith of the friends. So this story picks up very early in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter two. This is right smack in the beginning of Mark's gospel. And so Mark is is setting up this scene where Jesus is in this house. He's returned to Capernaum and everybody wants to hear him, see him, you know, be healed by him, just be near Jesus. And this place is packed out. It's not a very big house. And it is, you know, shoulder to shoulder. You can't get through. So much so, that these people, these four guys that just have heard about Jesus, they believe that Jesus is the guy that they are seeking. They wanna get their friend who's paralyzed to him, but they can't get through the crowd. So what do they do? They hoist the man on his mat up onto the roof. They climb on the roof with a paralyzed man and then they start digging through the roof so that they can try to get to Jesus. And it says they're right above Jesus, but it doesn't give us like what happened. Like did Jesus just like keep going on, like dirt's falling on his head, but he should still keep on teaching. Did nobody stop and hey, what are y'all doing up there? You're messing up my roof. Like where's the homeowner in this whole situation? It's a strange narrative, but but I think it serves more of a, a purpose than getting caught up in just these details. They open up a hole in the roof and they lower the man down on his mat. And Jesus looks up. He, he looks up at them and he says to them, he, he says, he sees, the, the text says, Jesus sees their faith and then he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Notice he doesn't heal the man. He doesn't do any physical healing. 
He sees the faith of these friends and he says, son, you, your sins are forgiven. He doesn't ask what's wrong with him. He doesn't ask how he got into this situation. He doesn't start some conversation about why or he should or should not help this person. The first and what might've been the only thing Jesus says to this man, if the teachers hadn't interrupted, is he just says, to, son, your sins are forgiven. The whole thing is kind of strange. It's a strange scene. It's a strange way to respond. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But then Jesus kind of gets a sense of what the teachers are thinking in their hearts. Jesus kind of knows that there, there's something going on within these teachers, these Jewish leaders, these law leaders. And he says to them, um, he says, why are you thinking this way? Why are you so upset? And they say, who, who does he think he is? to talk like that. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? They're upset because this man is committing the ultimate crime. He's blaspheming, talking against, pretending to be God, committing a capital offense punishable by death. And so Jesus says to them, he asks them a question. He says, what do you think is easier? Is it easier to forgive a man of his sins, to tell a man he's forgiven of sins? Or is it easier to heal a man of his disease, of his illness, of his ailment. And he says, so that you know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He looked at the man on the mat and says, I tell you, get up and walk. Take your mat and go. And he does. He literally does. He, he picks, he's paralyzed. And then all of a sudden he picks up his mat and he walks out in front of everybody. And everybody's amazed. And they say, we've never seen anything like this before. Did you pick up on those things in there? We're talking, you see that in this text, there's nature of who Jesus is, questions about healing, and then the faith of some friends. And so the, the Bible gives us a lot of names for Jesus. And I think this text actually sees, helps us see a reality of Jesus, right? So the Bible calls Jesus the Christ, the son of God, the lamb of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. But Mark is mostly concerned with one phrase, the son of man. Often it's the suffering son of man. He uses the phrase over and over in the gospel, son of man, son of man, son of man, as a way to show people that Jesus is divine. Most people use that same title and those other titles to talk about the emperor. People think that the emperor of Rome is divine. And the gospel writers say, no. The manifestation of God here on earth is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of man. And to prove it, Jesus actually gives proof. He says, to be able to show his authority... He heals a man of his physical ailment. See, because he was doing something initially that no one else was allowed to do. He forgave the man of his sins, which is something that's only attributed to God. And so that people would believe that he had that authority, so people would know he'd have that authority. He said to them, watch what else I can do. If you don't believe me, if you're questioning my authority, paralyzed man, take up your mat and walk. In this whole text, Mark, in the very beginning of his gospel, saying Jesus is the one Jesus is the Messiah we've been waiting for. Jesus is the Savior prophesied about. See, it makes sense for us because we've already known that. We think about that. But it's important for Mark to tell his audience, hey, this guy is the Son of God. This guy is the suffering Son of Man come to die for us. It sets up a very important precedent for who Jesus is, the one true authority of heaven on earth. But the next thing this text makes us think about is, well, what is this weird connection between sin and physical suffering? 
ailment. What is, this, what is this connection between having to be forgiven of your sins before you can be physically healed? I think oftentimes we've done a bad job of talking about this. As a church, I think we've done people damage and harm in the way we talked about this. See, in the Old Testament, it was often believed that if you were obedient to the law, you would be blessed by God. If you were disobedient to the law, then you would be punished by God. That is the, the chief theme, motif working throughout the Old Testament. And so the Jewish leaders are operating under the same idea. If you remember in John's gospel, there's a, a, a part where people see a blind man and they say, who sinned this man or his parents so that he's blind? They just have this assumption that if you're poor, if you're sick, if you've gotten hurt, if something bad has happened to you, it's because you sinned, because you messed up. Or if it was bad enough, it's because your parent messed up. That is the assumptive norm for all these people in the ancient Near East, in this first century. If you obey, you get blessed. If you disobey, you might get paralyzed. You might be born paralyzed. And and that's such a problematic thing for us, in my mind, as we think about who God is. But that is so much of what is driving this narrative. The reason the Jewish leaders are so upset about this, that he's talking this way, is because Jesus is trying to flip things upside down, right? In their minds, they're the only ones that can forgive sins. You have to go to the temple, you have to offer sacrifice, you have to be made pure, and then you'll be you know, forgiven of your sins. And then, if you're lucky, God will love you enough, and if you've got something bad going in your life, God will then fix that. And it's predatory. They're using the forgiveness of sins to get money and sacrifice and food from, from these people, mostly who have very little. The people in the worst situations think they need to be forgiven of the most sins, so they just keep giving up of themselves. And Jesus is saying, no, that is not where the nature of forgiveness comes from. It is not contractional. It is because I'm the son of man and I've come to forgive all people. Jesus looks at this man who did nothing. He didn't bring a sacrifice. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't do anything Jesus looked at the faith of the friends, looked at this man and said, you are forgiven of your sins. And so that you know that I have the authority to do this, to set this right, I'm gonna heal him to show everybody else that I'm allowed to do this, that I am God's representation. I'm God here on earth. I have this authority, the son of man. And in that, he disrupted the entire established order. And that's an important thing for us to realize about this text, that that Mark Mark often uses healing narratives, the gospel does, for a deeper meaning to tell us something else. But I think what we often do, and this is the the harmful part, can be, um, is that we just look at this as a prescription for healing. If you have enough faith, then God will heal you. If you don't, then apparently you didn't have enough faith. And when I hear that, it breaks my heart. I mean, as a pastor, I've heard all sorts of things. When somebody has been given a difficult diagnosis or disease, when a hurricane comes to the coast, when trauma or tragedy happens and somebody says, well, it's because you don't have enough faith. Or if you have faith, everything will be made better. I don't think that's what this story is trying to tell us. I think there's a a deeper meaning, something else going on here. And so the nature of healing, whenever we just put our assumptions onto the text, can get really problematic for how we understand God. It makes us question God. It makes us cry out to God. It makes us not believe in God. Have a crisis of faith. Have you ever been there? Have you ever had something like that happen in your life? So have people in the Bible. So have I. In the Old Testament, you have psalmists that say, God, where are you? 
Will you hide your face from me for forever? We have a, a psalmist in Psalm 89 that says, calls God a liar. Straight up calls God a liar. He says, God, you promised something. You didn't fulfill your promise. You are a liar. Job questions God, lamentations, Ecclesiastes. Within our Bible, we have this kind of permission to struggle with God, to figure things out, which is natural because we're not God, so we don't know all things. We experience this pain and we don't understand it. And so if you've ever been through something, if you're going through something, if there's something going on in your life that you don't understand, that is difficult, that is harmful, if, you just, if you're sitting there hearing somebody say, well, have more faith and everything will be made better, it, it might be. Everything might just naturally work out and things will be fine better. And I believe God's gonna work through that. But it's also okay to cry. It's also okay to question. It's also okay to struggle. We have that as a precedent in the Bible. If you've lost a loved one, it's okay to wonder where is God? Because I think God is bigger than our questions. I don't think our doubt will change God because God will always be God and we can't do anything about that. We won't be able to say you are no longer God. The creature cannot say to the creator, hey, do something different. But know this, even in that, even in your doubt, even in your struggle, even in your questioning, know this, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even when we believe God might not be there, that doesn't mean God's not there. Even whenever we are questioning and struggling, that doesn't mean that God is not still present. As we grow and develop We learn about God in new ways and it changes our way of knowing the world. It changes the way we know God. And so where I wanna land this plane, and I know I've gone on a little bit longer than normal, but but the, the faith of the friends was key for this man. Jesus said he looked at their faith and then forgave the man of his sins. I think in this, we see the nature of what it means to be a neighbor, what it means to be the church. There will be times that you're on a mat. There'll be times when, when you don't know which way is up, when you feel helpless, when you feel like you can't move, when you feel broken, scared. We are here to carry your mat. Not just the clergy, not just the staff, this whole church. That's what it means to be a neighbor. That's what it means to be a Christian is that in times of need of your sisters and brothers, you help them. You let them lean on you. You carry that mat. And when you are well, look for those in need. Our brother Robbins, our sister Nell, they are not with us and haven't been for two weeks. We are praying and we are believing that God is the God of all things, but we don't know how things are gonna go. We don't know how long that she'll be nice to you. We don't know what, we know that we are here for them, that we love them. We're taking them meals. Our chapel will be open every day from eight to five if you wanna come pray for Nell or for anybody else. If you are going through something, we wanna pray for you. We have a prayer list that circulates every week. If you'd like to be on it, we would love to put you on it so that we can be your support. And if you have needs, if there's something going on in your life, it's okay to admit when you're down on that mat. It's okay to say, I need help. Because we're here for that too. So 
I pray this morning that as you look inwardly at yourself, you ask, what is going on in my life for which I need help? And who can I lean on? If you feel alone, come and talk to me and we'll find somebody. We'll find you a group. We'll find you support. We'll find you a place where you can feel that love and that support. And if things are going well in your life right now and you're not there, you will be one day. So go ahead and pay it forward. Find a place to plug in where you can provide that support, where someone can lean into you because that's what it means to be a neighbor. Will you pray with me?